This is Fayette Forward, where we discuss trails, transit, city planning, and anything else that's on our minds. Our goal is to keep Fayetteville moving forward in a positive, inclusive, and intentional way that benefits everyone who lives in this great city in the Ozarks. You ready? Come on in. Welcome to Fay It Forward. I'm Meredith Caston, and I'm here with my husband, Nick. And we are interviewing Delaney Bartlett today. She's the founder of Fayetteville Strong, which is a great grassroots organization here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And we're super excited to have her on. Thanks for joining us, Delaney. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, welcome, welcome. Well, if you wouldn't mind starting just telling us a little about yourself and how long you've been in Fayetteville, if it's forever or a few years or whatever, <laughs> and just kind of some of your background. Sure. I consider myself a na- native Fayettevillian, but I've kind of moved around. We lived in various places in northwest Arkansas when I was growing up, but we, we never stayed away from Fayetteville for too long. So I've always kind of considered it my hometown. I've attended just about every elementary school that was in operation in Fayetteville, both of the junior high schools at the time and Fayetteville High School. So, yeah, I think I got the cred. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And what is it you like most about Fayetteville? Oh, my gosh. That kept drawing you back, I guess. Um, well, I mean, when I was a kid, I I mean, I didn't really have a choice. But what I liked about it and why I decided to stay as an adult, I really, of course, love the university. I've gotten two degrees from there. I now work for the university. I just really like how inclusive it is and how it's fun especially during the summer, there's always like free concerts and performances and festivals. And there's just like always something fun to do that either costs absolutely nothing or is just really cheap. And so I really like that about Fayetteville. Yeah, definitely. We really love that about Fayetteville, too. I think having come from a very frugal family, that's kind of what I did growing up. And I always thought it would be so cool to have some of the things that you were saying in a city, the inclusivity, the festive feel, I think the kindness, the friendliness, and then also trails. I always thought that would be so cool, but my own hometown didn't really take that path. They sort of went in different directions in a lot of those ways so right (laughs) and see for me this is all very new yeah because I'm old I'm Gen X and so like all the trails and stuff they're great but obviously like I had already settled down in Fayetteville before any of that even became a thing yeah (laughs) well that was one of the things we wanted to talk with you about was how has your experience of living here changed kind of before during and I wouldn't say after because it's an ongoing thing, but before and during and currently with the trails, has that impacted like how you live life here? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like most Americans, I think I had no conception of a walkable city or what walkability was or any of that. But what I did know growing up poor was that when the car broke down, you were F-U-C-K-E-D. I can't tell you how many times my family's life was absolutely thrown into chaos because our car broke down and we couldn't afford to fix it. And so, you know, that's always been in the back of my mind of like not wanting to be in that position. But it wasn't until I started traveling. I've been to several cities in Mexico and, and I've also been to Barcelona. I was in Ireland too, but that was less of a walkable place. And being in cities where you don't need a car to get around, it was just like, like my 
brain was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is what it needs to be like. Yeah. I mean, we do have a bus system and it used to be better. That's what's so weird is that we've made so much progress on so many fronts. But the university bus system has gotten demonstrably worse, which is my next big thing that I'm going to try to work on. But, you know, I always tried to live somewhere near the buses. I tried to walk as much as possible. It's close to like grocery stores and things like that. And now my son, he is on the autism spectrum and he doesn't drive because executive function stuff is not. He's not good at that. And so it's just, it's better if he doesn't drive. And so that also opened my eyes to how people with disabilities, you know, if it's a disability that makes you unable to drive a car, then what are you supposed to do, right? Living in Fayetteville and seeing how it's, it's still pretty car dependent, but they're starting to make these changes. That's definitely been encouraging for me. (laughs) And I'm curious with the bus system stuff, do you think that it's mostly staffing that they just don't have enough people to drive and so they've had to cut routes or do you think there's something more at play? Oh, there's definitely something more. I mean, obviously not having enough drivers is a problem and it makes me wonder why. I'd like to kind of dig into the bottom of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I started going to the university in 1991 and the buses, first of all, they were colored routes instead of numbers. And I don't know if this is like a legitimate disability or whatever, but I am not good with numbers. Like numbers are very (laughs) confusing to me. I can't remember them. They're just bad. So I really liked that they were just colors. And the various buses, they had fairly simple routes. They all kind of went to the union. That was like the main terminal. And then they went out to various off-campus apartment complexes and places where people would park. And it was very intuitive and simple. And, you know, it wasn't the great. They didn't run after like six o'clock or something. They didn't run on the weekends and it was only kind of right in the campus area, but it was something, right? It was at least something. And I didn't realize this until recently, but a few years ago, apparently transit and parking brought in some expensive consultant and they rejiggered the route. So they're now like all weird and circuitous and they make all these like figure eights. And coming from a family of, like, professional CDL drivers, I'm just, like, aghast. Like, who (laughs) thought this was a good idea? This is just insane. And not even just figure eights, but figure eights that involved left-hand turns. Like, it's just wrong in every way. (laughs) And I don't understand why. And I'm, I'm, I'm working with my staff senator to try and figure out what's going on and how we can fix it. So... Well, I love that you're working on it and you're having conversations because I think a lot of times it's very tempting to kind of sit and complain and then not do anything. And the whole the whole idea behind the podcast that we have is kind of making that positive impact and hoping to pay it forward. But one <laughs> of the things we're hoping to do is get someone from both Razorback Transit and Ozark Regional Transit on the show, maybe the same episode, maybe separately. But I know there's a lot of interplay between those two yeah. and figure out how that all ties in together, not just with you know, the bus and public transportation realm, but also how does that play in with the trails? So if somebody were riding their bike and a huge rainstorm came along, what does that look like? Is there a stop along every single area where someone might be biking so that they can throw their bike onto the bus? So, yeah. And what part of Fayetteville do you live in right now? I live just across the creek from here. 
on South Craig. And we're near the library for listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't want to dox myself too oh hard my here. Gosh, no, no. <laughs> gotcha. Well, you're pretty close to the Greenway, so you have oh, yeah. great access to the trails. Yeah, I live in pretty much the most perfect neighborhood in this whole city, and I hate to say that. I don't want to make people jealous. But <laughs> it is pretty freaking awesome because I'm super close to the trails. And I'm literally right around the corner from a Walmart neighborhood market, which whatever you think about Walmart or the Waltons or whatever, like it's a grocery store and it's literally right around the corner from where I live. So combine that with having been able to work from home since the pandemic, I hardly ever have to drive. And it was because I was so close to that trail that I was like... I've got to start riding a bike. Like, this is ridiculous. I live close to the best trail, and I'm not riding a bike. So I think it was maybe fall of 21, I made the plunge and bought a bicycle. And it took me a while to, like, relearn how to ride. Yeah. Because I haven't ridden a bike since I was, like, a teenager, yeah. which has been a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, once I kind of got the hang of it again and everything, I found the right bike and all of that. I'm just loving it. I'm still really out of shape and I can't go very far. And the hills, of course, are a major issue. Fitville will make you get in shape. Yes. yes. Just, just by its very nature. <laughs> it will. No matter if you want to or not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. <laughs> Fayette Hill. Yeah, yeah. Fayette Hill. I like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're probably not the first to come up with yeah. that, but I, I do I do like that. Well, so how do you use the trails right now? You obviously have a lot in your immediate neighborhood, but do you use them to go to farther places away from you? Or what has been the most benefit for you on the trail system? Well, like I said, I'm really out of shape, so I still can't go very far. But I have been able to ride the trails to Dixon Street, which is where you can catch other buses, university buses. I've ridden it to the south, like towards Walker Park. But like I said, I'm really out of shape, so I can't really ride very far. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Yeah, I think that the trails should be for everyone. And I know that we've had obviously some issues with people leaving the scooters and the e-bikes from the rental fleets in the trails, which another plug for C-Click Fix. We were told on a previous episode that you should definitely report anything you see left in the trail to the C-Click Fix app because that way they are aware of it, the companies are aware of it, and then they can ding the users who didn't color within the lines, play by the rules. <laughs> but in any case, I love that about the trail system that they are putting these different scooters in and the seated ones by Vio are really nice if you don't want to do any biking or they have those ones by Spin that are e-bikes. The standing scooters are a little scary for me still. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Agreed. But, yeah, but the seated ones are pretty neat. And it's cool to see that they have these kind of low-income options for people who want to use the trail for transit, but they, or for transportation, I should say, but they can't necessarily afford the pretty high prices that it costs. So those would always be kind of cool if you ever wanted to, like, ride them up to work. You probably could do that. Yeah, I'm currently, like, trying to plan because I do have to go back in starting next week for two days a week. And so I'm trying to plan how I can ride the buses because I live really close to campus. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to drive. But the bus routes are just so ridiculous. <laughs> I will literally have to leave my house an hour before I have to be at work yeah. in order to take the buses. That's a common complaint with bus users. And I think having lived in Philly, the thing that kind of mitigated that, like 
was SEPTA. I mean, it was an underground subway system. So I'm not really sure. I know there's been talk of high-speed rail. I know it's kind of a pipe dream at this point, but maybe if we talk about it enough, we can manifest it. Right. Um, But I think in many cases, that's just one of the limitations to buses in general. So that's what we always come back to is like, where does micromobility fit into all of this? Where do buses fit in? Where do people getting e-bike credits so then you don't have to worry about the Fayette Hills? Like <laughs> those things are brutal, but we yeah. ended up getting e-bikes and we were really dragging our feet because they're expensive, you know, yeah. but we only have one car and we share it and we try to get everywhere we can on these e-bikes. And it has been a game changer on those oh, hills. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really like looking into e-bikes as well. Yeah, and, and they're they run the gamut between cheap, not well cheap for an e-bike, I should say, yeah. not cheap, <laughs> and very very expensive. But luckily, because they're becoming more and more popular, the prices are coming down a little bit. Some of the pandemic in- increases have come down a bit, so we're really hopeful that there's going to be some more affordable options coming on the market soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ideally, employers can do things like give employees credit. So I see so much of that from companies giving transportation credits and gym credits and things like that. So how cool if they gave you a credit toward an e-bike or a credit toward like a VO membership or a spin membership? Well, so now I was just curious to hear about Fayetteville Strong and how this came to be. Well, like I said, you know, I, I had already grown up with that perception of the the big issues about having to have a car and then through travel was exposed to cities where you can actually walk and ride a bus and take the metro and not have to have a car at all and it's just wonderful and I love it and so then I started falling down the YouTube radicalization (laughs) rabbit hole of urbanism (laughs) I think because I was wanting to to start riding my bike, I started watching YouTube videos about bike commuting, like shifter and not just bikes. And that's what got me going down the radicalization rabbit hole. The algorithm got its hands all over <laughs> Yes. And so that's how I came across Strong Towns was through Not Just Bikes. And so, yeah, that was it. Like once I started learning that this was an actual thing, there were other people who were actually trying to make this happen to fix our cities and make them more equitable and better for people's health. I mean, I have various health issues, one of which is directly because of not being able to get enough exercise. There's been study after study after study after study that show that in cities where people have more ability to walk and bicycle places, the health outcomes are much better. And in places that are more car dependent, the health outcomes are much worse. Like it's just clear. It's that you couldn't get more clear. And so all those things, environmental health, mental health as well, social health, being able to be in a community where you know your neighbors and you're a regular at the corner coffee shop and, you know, the clerk at the grocery store knows your name like that feels good. That's what human beings were evolved to do is live in community around people who know about you and care about you to some degree anyway. And when you live in a little box that you then get into your car and you drive to another box and you never get out and just meet people and talk to people, that's really bad for our mental health and our social cohesion. So I just got finished reading a book called It's a Sprawl World. That's a great title. (laughs) It it really is. He's a sociologist, and that's where he comes at. So Strong Towns kind of comes at it from that fiscal responsibility, budgeting, 
perspective, whereas Douglas Morris, the author of It's a Sprawl World, he comes at it from a sociological aspect. And there's a big chunk of the book that it kind of starts to sound like grandpa, you know, (laughs) yelling about kids these days need to learn respect, you know. (laughs) But his points are really valid and he's got footnotes and all of this. And and it really is true. I do find that in places like this where you get out and talk to your neighbors and your kids play with the neighbor kids, you can't be as hateful and nasty as like I'm sure we have all experienced on social media, oh online, when people are behind that anonymous avatar talking with people they'll never see in real life. I mean, you just see some of the worst, nastiest parts of humanity come out that way. And when you have to face someone and actually live next door to them and your kids go to school together or whatever, you know, maybe you're going to be a little nicer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, It's like we've lost the ability to self-regulate because we haven't had to do it as much. And it's a very important skill. I just wanted to say really quickly that you had mentioned mental health. And I think another perk of where we live is that it's a beautiful area. Yeah, And being on the trails, especially the way they've carved them through all these really lush trees and everything, it's it's good for your brain. It's good for your soul, you know? And and so I think that's another perk is just sometimes if you're in a car, you don't even notice some of the beauty because you're flying by it so Mm -hmm. fast. And when you're on a trail, it forces you to look up and go, wow, this is, we live in a great place. And the eye contact and saying hello to people on the trails. I swear it's a little dopamine hit for me every time when someone (laughs) just smiles and says hello. And that doesn't happen that often when you're in the car. It's more like a scene out of the show Beef. I've personally been in that situation where like sudden somebody cuts you off or they do something that's so egregious on the road and it makes me just so furious yeah and it's like i don't imagine there being a world where that would happen if i was just strolling along the trail and saying hello to people yeah. and stopping in like you said and getting my morning coffee and yeah and and that really does and douglas Morris talks about this in the book that when we're in a car, it like just automatically puts you in this sort of like competitive mindset. And I feel like because I don't have to drive very often, maybe once or twice a week, I will find myself getting in that state. But I do find it easier to just be like, okay, I'm really not in that big of a hurry. Yeah. Like just relax. It's fine. And I think that comes from the majority of my life not driving my car. It kind of helps me to have that perspective, I guess. Even when you do drive a car, I think the mental health benefits kind of help you deal with being in a car and feeling like, oh my God, this guy's going so slow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I have the opposite thing where I'm like, why is this person going so fast? There's no hurry. Everyone who drives (laughs) faster than you is a maniac and everyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. Yeah, so true. And wherever you you live in this entire world, people are like, nobody knows how to drive in rain, (laughs) snow. It doesn't matter what city. Insert inclement weather of your choice. Yeah. Nobody knows how to drive in these conditions. So... <laughs> yep. Well, so you told us a, a little about how Fayetteville Strong came to be, but could you describe maybe for the listeners, like, what is Fayetteville Strong? What is it at its core and what do you hope to achieve from it? I think at its core, it's just a community activist group. We're not like an official nonprofit or anything like that. I literally just went out and made flyers and talked to everyone on the trail and everyone I saw and went to the active transportation advisory committee meetings and 
you know, I had put out a thing on Facebook asking if there was a local Strong Towns group because I just assumed this is Fayetteville. Of course, you know, somebody's already got one going. Nothing. And after a couple of months, I'm like, well, I guess if I want it to happen, I'm going to have to just make it happen. So that's what I did. And we meet every month. We're just getting started. It's like, you know, getting input from everyone. Okay, what are some things that we want to work on? What's going on? How can we support various projects that are getting started or are being, you know, maybe debated in the city council? Um, So we don't have like a set, like we want to achieve this. We have a series of four overarching goals of making Fayetteville more walkable, more bikeable, and more equitable, while still trying to not displace the residents to try to avoid that negative gentrification aspect of it. What has it been like to start a grassroots organization just completely from scratch? Well, this is the first time I've done this kind of a group since I was in college in the early 90s. I had a cannabis legalization student group. It was called Fayetteville Alliance for Cannabis Tolerance, or FACT. (laughs) I knew I liked you. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the first, you know, local anything. And like at that time, our goal was just to educate people because we knew legalization was you know, not on the horizon. So we just wanted to educate people. And it was a student group at the University of Arkansas. So, I mean, I had done that before, but I had a co-founder, a woman named Sherry Robbins, but that was in the early 90s and things are very different now. And so like my old school ways of doing stuff of like making flyers and putting flyers around, you know, I had to supplement that with some social media stuff, which I wouldn't say I'm social media illiterate. I'm just social media averse. Like there's just so much toxicity on every platform that I just don't like to be on them. But, you know, I tried doing some of that and I think it just kind of spread through word of mouth. I found a few like really passionate people and those people found more people and those people found more people. And as soon as I started the Facebook group, I pretty much immediately had 200 people in the group. And those were real people, not scammers. I mean, we've gotten some scammers lately, (laughs) and that's been the challenge. That has been a really big challenge. But the biggest challenge so far, thankfully, knock on wood, has just been finding a good place to meet for free. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting because there are a lot of places you can reserve for free, but they tend to be for smaller groups, such as the room we're in right now at the library. But when as soon as you get into a bigger space, it costs money. And so and they do give discounts for nonprofits and things, but it's still money. It yeah. costs money. So that that's an ongoing thing we're trying to figure out. But um, shout out to Art Ventures, though. They've been so cool about letting us meet there. And you don't have to pay a dime, although I really love when people throw in a couple of bucks just to say thank you. But it's a beautiful facility and it's pretty easy to get there using active transportation. Yeah. That's the other thing we've run into is there are a few places that are really cool and maybe even have big areas where you can sit and meet, but they're so car dependent that yeah. it kind of defeats the purpose of this group that's yeah. trying to be active Making everybody have to risk their lives to get there. Exactly. And Art Ventures, it's really close to the trail. And there's a bus stop almost directly across the street from oh, from wow. them, too. A Razorback Transit bus stop. So, yeah. And, and Lakeisha has just been completely awesome. And I really want to urge everyone to support Art Ventures. Yes. They're yeah. awesome. They have, She's awesome. They're awesome. They, they, yeah. they just have a lot of wonderful art from a lot of wonderful people and just 
just good people there in general. Yeah, so. and they do a lot of community programs too. It's not just a gallery. It's mm-hmm. like a community organization. And I'm always about supporting positive community organizations. Yeah. I mean, that's what's going to move Fayetteville. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's what's going to move Fayetteville forward is in in the best way is more community, more connection, and Art Ventures is a great example of that. Oh yeah, and Fayetteville Strong is as well. So thank you for that. <laughs> yes, thank you. And well, in that vein, we've we've kind of touched on it a few times, but the challenges of not wanting to displace people who've always been able to afford to live here. People have found out how cool the area is. They're flooding in. I mean, we're some of those people who came in, but no hate toward people for wanting a better life for themselves, for moving into a new city. How do we balance being Yimbies, you know, yes, in my backyard with being a little bit NIMBY and saying, well, we don't want Yimbyism to come at the cost of someone who's lived here all these years and is barely able to get by. Do you feel like Fayetteville Strong is going to be instrumental in kind of addressing that and finding that nice balance there? I really hope so. And I think it's important to be really clear that it's not the people moving here to live here that are the problem. The problem is the landlords and the property owners and the developers who choose to raise people's rents, who choose to like charge way more money so that it prices out the people who live here. So, I mean, yeah, it's true. People from, say, California can come here and they have so much more money that they can, you know, outbid people on a house or whatever. But, you know, when you're talking about low-income people, the vast majority of them, like myself, are renters. And it's when the landlords choose to jack up the rent Like, we didn't have anything to do with that. We didn't ask for that, right? So we're just trying to, like, be part of this community and encourage investment. And, you know, a lot of the time I was in Fayetteville, I lived on the south side of town, including in several of the public housing projects. And, I mean, Fayetteville used to be a lot rougher. People used to get stabbed on Dixon Street. Like, you know, it was a whole thing. But, you know, people moving in, trying to make it better like i've seen the square go from just kind of being whatever it was just a place there were some businesses there they had the farmers market on saturdays to now being this beautiful garden people come here it's a whole destination and that's because the city made a conscious decision to like beautify it and support it and um those are good things Right. It's when the property owners basically decide to jack up prices. That's where the problem comes in. And that is kind of a, a, a slightly separate struggle because you are talking about a different fight against different problems. But I feel like it's got to be kept in mind and there's got, it's got to be sort of parallel with us. Because if we don't, we are going to end up displacing a lot of people. And I don't want that to happen. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think that's the always the dark side of any place getting better and growing. It's like growing and thriving is typically great on the surface, but there are always going to be people who struggle because of that. And so a big reason we wanted to start this podcast was to have these conversations and get people's personal perspectives and find out from someone who's lived these experiences what you think the best way forward is what what you think the best route forward is for a lot of these issues oh yeah i mean i'm i'm pretty radical on this like i mean maybe this one isn't super radical but i definitely think we need more low-income housing duh but also like i think there needs to be things in place like rent control i mean new york had rent control for a long long time and it was a wonderful thriving city i'm not going to say it was perfect no city is perfect but when they when they you know released that rent control when they stopped having it 
it instantly became the playground of the rich. Like no working class person can afford to live in New York. Or if they do, you know, they're spending three quarters of their income for a cardboard box under a train track. Or you know? living with 10 other people in a, <laughs> right. in a one bedroom. In a one bedroom, exactly. And so, you know, that's the only way to stop that from happening is to, you know, demand things like rent control, more low income housing, more. And this is where we get into the problem of we are in Arkansas. We are literally the only state in America that has no tenant protections whatsoever. Tenants have no rights in the state of Arkansas. And that's something I'd really like to change. But again, that's kind of a separate. But they're all interconnected, right? Like I, like I said, I'm coming at it from an equity issue. As you displace people from cities because they can't afford to live there and you know, all the nice, you know, upper class people who live there are making it very pleasant and walkable and beautiful. But in the meantime, working class and poor people are having to live way farther away and mm -hmm. drive their cars into town. Yes. So the two things are really, you can't really separate it out. Yep. Yeah. And, and one of the most effective ways to lower prices is generally just building more housing, period. Yeah. And a lot of that as the price per square foot goes up, because naturally there's more people trying to live in the same area, the way that that's typically done most efficiently is to build more densely, right? So denser housing, more townhouses, uh, mid-rises, maybe high-rises, depending on where it is. And that's where you kind of run into this NIMBY versus YIMBY, right? Because yeah. That is really the only way we're going to thrive long term is to densify certain parts. I'm not saying we have to do it to all of Fayetteville. I mean, the, you always can have pockets that are you know different right. than others. That's fine. But I think that there's going to have to be density. So then what are your thoughts on balancing that with people's need or not need, but their their thought that like everyone should have more land and you shouldn't have neighbors right next to you? Because there is a bit of that right in our, historically in Arkansas. You've had a lot of land. You've had a yeah. lot of space. So it's the whole country. It is. And, and, and I think it's I think it's hard to balance that. And it's funny because sometimes I think some of the people who are most affected by the price increases don't want the density. Yeah. And it's like but the density is kind of part of the solution. So how, what do you think of, of that? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, I definitely agree. We need more housing, obviously. But I also, like you kind of mentioned, like the townhomes and the mid-rises, like the big issue is that we have that missing middle. I mean, Fayetteville does have some of that, some big old Victorian houses that have been like subdivided up into a bunch of little funky apartments or little like two-story eight plexus like those are the perfect kinds of things like on my street for a perfect example like i live in a single family detached home with a yard right it's tiny it's maybe only 900 square feet but on our street we also have a couple of three-story apartment buildings we have some condos like townhouses they're very odd but you know they're not single family detached houses so there are a lot of different ways. And, you know, when you have pets, when you have kids, you do want a little more. You want a little yard. You know, people want a garden. But at the same time, if you don't allow your neighborhood to organically change and grow and evolve with what is needed, then it's not sustainable. And part of this, I think, I th you know, I guess I'm a Marxist because everything comes back to <laughs> Everything comes back to property and in money and all that. But too many people see housing as an investment tool instead of 
a human necessity. People need to live in houses, mm-hmm. right? And so I agree. I think we need more density. I think it needs to be appropriate to the neighborhood in the sense of you don't want a giant 20-story skyscraper surrounded by a bunch of little homes. Like this one lot that had a single-family detached home, they sold it. The new owners put in like a two-story eightplex that looks just like a building and it fits in. And then someone else down the road might put in, you know, something else that's a little bigger. And then somebody else might put in a duplex and it just evolves Mm -hmm. to where people get what they need without suddenly the entire you don't want no change but you also don't want the entire neighborhood to be bulldozed Mm -hmm. for anything not for streets not for quote-unquote urban renewal and not in the name of you know a developer going oh well we need density you're all evicted you know so I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and definitely. Honestly, in that vein, we we think a lot about just different parts of town that make sense to be more dense. And we're fairly new to the area. We're only like two and a half years in. So we don't have nearly the perspective that most people who've who've lived here all these years and seen it evolve for better and for worse. But it seems like there are a lot of opportunities along like the 71B corridor. I saw some yeah. areas. And it seems like anywhere there's a major arterial road, it just makes a lot of sense to put some public transportation along there, some bus routes, some micromobility options, and then build just little pockets of density so that you can have a little dense development right around there mm-hmm. with just what people need, like you were saying earlier, a little corner store, somewhere to grab a cup of coffee, and I would say the newspaper, but then I sound totally <laughs> like <laughs> But you know what I mean? Just go in yeah. there and, and get a scone or something. Oh, and... did you see the paper boy? He dropped off the paper. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Can you give me the paper, see? (laughs) But I just could see this city evolving in a way where it doesn't feel ultra urban, like everything has to happen downtown and then there's skyscrapers. I think you can still maintain the character and the open space and the almost like rural meets slightly urban feel that we've got going on and still keep it affordable and keep all these dense developments trail adjacent so that then someone doesn't have to have this car situation we we've been out and we've looked at areas we played pickleball one day i'm just laughing because i was so bad at it but we played pickleball one day at some courts that were like way out in lowell maybe and anyway it was really fun but we had to drive out there we thought and then we realized the trails go all the way out there and there was so much open space and there you know there was this giant athletic complex where we met our friends which was it was cool but i guess point being i think that the trails have gotten to the point where they go so far that really the missing link is how do we use these trails for transportation and how do we build affordable housing along the trail system We talk about this all the time. Yeah. There's an empty lot right near where I live that, again, would be really, really close to the trail, right across the street from the Walmart neighborhood market. There's also, like, if you know Prairie Street, there's the Prairie Street Tap Room. There's there's a live music venue. I think it's just called Prairie Street Live. Mm -hmm. You know, there's our Sega's and Woodstone Pizza. You know, there's just, like, so much in that little area. But there's this... This little corner lot that used to have a single-family home on it that has been torn down. Please, someone put like a little two-story, four-plex, eight-plex, like something that will fit on that little lot, but that will be somewhat dense because this is the perfect spot. We've got to get people living here. Yes, and then they can support all those local businesses. It comes back to those Strong Towns principles where people want to shop and support 
things that are within walking distance. Who doesn't want to walk out the door and go grab a little cup of coffee or tea or a biscuit or whatever you want to have? I sound so old. But anyway, like who doesn't want to do that? And I think you have to have the businesses for people to support, but then in order for them to thrive, you have to have the people and the density to support those businesses. Exactly. Exactly. You had both mentioned, you know, fitting in the neighborhood character when you're building new housing. But what's nice is on certain places in town, such as 71B, there really is no character. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you, you yeah. can take some pretty big risks there. So I think like yeah. what you were saying with the Prairie Street area, that's where you would want to be more tasteful about it, right? But in somewhere like 71B, I mean, it's a big strode. Like, yeah. the, there's just like... It, there's not even contiguous sidewalks. And I know there's a huge plan to make it better. And that's awesome. And the yeah, plan is wonderful. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think that that's where the risks should be taken, where yeah. you can say, you know, build a little higher than you would somewhere else. Because the reality is it's just a big car thoroughfare. Yeah. And it can and only get be, better. Yeah. And it would be the perfect place to have, like, say, a four or five story, mm-hmm. bottom story, retail, yes. top, upper story. You could even have one or two stories of retail, office space, whatever, and then have your upper stories be apartments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, absolutely. 71B is kind of an eyesore, in my opinion. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great businesses mm-hmm. that oh, I love to shop at. The other thing is the mall. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I know that there are still some stores that are in the mall but if you go there you can tell that it's kind of dying and that giant parking lot like i just see that sea of asphalt we need to build stuff here Mm -hmm. again retail bottom floor you know residential upper floors with little trails in between you know you could even have a park i mean it's so so much much land like it's so huge and it's just asphalt it's nothing right now it's it's a relic of the past yeah and and it's it does serve a purpose still but i think you're right it's a prime redevelopment opportunity and And i like what you're saying where it's not kicking out those businesses it's just adding dense housing and then using that space a little more wisely so it's not just this sprawling, yeah. you know, dated shopping mall, which honestly, I go there whenever I need a nostalgia fix. <laughs> and I love so many of the food because they were formerly food truck. What do you, what would you call it? They ran food trucks and then they move into the mall. So there's It's a Wrap and there's, I think, another place in there that did it. So the food in there is pretty good. The stores can be pretty cool. It's more just how do we add some urban development around this so that there isn't so much wasted asphalt with parking and you can even access it on the trail that's the coolest thing is there's a little exit if you're willing to ride up that giant hill (laughs) that you can go and ride your bike to the mall yeah so yeah and originally the the person and i can't remember his name off the top of my head but the guy who invented the mall as we know it originally the plan was to have residential that like they were supposed to be a whole enclosed like community where you had residences, you had offices with like doctors, post offices, that kind of thing, and retail. Well, of course, you know, the developers look at it and they're like, oh, we'd rather just have a place for people to shop. And Mm -hmm. so now that's what the mall basically is. It's not a bad thing. I sometimes go to the mall, like there's a couple stores there that, I mean, that's, that's where the store is. So that's where I go. But I do think that the whole idea of the mall is just sort of the pinnacle like the Pinnacle Hills Mall, of car (laughs) culture. Like, it really is. That is the most car culture thing that you can car culture. And Pinnacle Hills Mall is even, like, it it took it up a notch. I wouldn't even call that place a mall. It's like this faux 
town, <laughs> but it's all just shops and you have to drive everywhere. I do not get that, but I'm a weirdo. No, you're not. You're. I mean, you're clearly in like mind, like-minded crowd here. I will say Nick is a fan of driving. It's interesting because I don't like to drive. And my father, who incidentally is a sociologist, and I was thinking would be so fascinated by what you were talking about earlier, he doesn't like to drive. And I think because both of us find it very stressful. Nick finds it kind of exhilarating in some ways. And I think there is a lot of culture. There's a lot of like Americana baked into the whole car culture thing. And so as much as I think selfishly, I'd be like, oh, I don't need cars at all. Let's get rid of them. I think there are enough people out there who would love to keep cars. Obviously, they enjoy them. How can I be a man without a car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is like Jack and Diane stuff. But but I just think it would be really wonderful if we could find a happy medium, which now I'm getting really philosophical. But I think with our country recently, we've had a really hard time extracting politics out of these conversations where – Nobody, at least I don't want to take away anybody's right to drive. I mean, there are times we have to take our cats to the vet. It's a hell of a lot easier putting them in a car than on a bike rack, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, cars are here to stay. It's more of a question of how do we make it as easy as possible for people who choose not to drive, can't drive, or simply don't want to drive to still just do the things they want. Well, I do have one question. What are some of your dream improvements to the trail system? Based on what you know, what you've experienced, what would you love to see the trail system have to make it an even better experience for recreation, commuting? I don't know that I have any specific thing to improve on the trails. I mean, what I've seen of them so far, they're pretty awesome. I'm sure people who are on them more have a better perspective. What I would like my dream, and you and I have talked about this before, is to have Dixon Street at least most of Dixon Street, be all pedestrianized. And I would like to see a downtown Dixon trolley that goes up Dixon Street to either east, I would say up to east. That way it can go right in front of the Graduate Hotel, right by the square, then go down Center Street, all the way down to Duncan. So now you're going into the residential, and then you go up Duncan to Dixon again. So now you're connecting campus. And people are like, well, trolleys, you know, they're really not the most efficient, blah, blah, blah. But having been to cities that have trolleys, including Eureka Springs, which their trolleys aren't actually trolleys. They're just buses with the body looks like a trolley. People love them. They they're do. so cute. They're so cool. They're so fun. They will pay money to ride these trolleys. Yep. I think that a trolley like that, especially if you run it on home games, would pay for itself. I really, really do. So... That's my dream. <laughs> I love it. This is what, that's my favorite thing about asking the dreaming questions because you get these really cool answers. We've all been radicalized. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Radical urbanists. Well, how can someone get involved with Fayetteville Strong? If they're intrigued and they're thinking, these are my people, how would you suggest somebody gets involved? Well, if you go on Facebook, we have a Facebook group called Fateville Strong. You can join. We have our meetings on the last Wednesday of every month at 530. For now, we're at Art Ventures, though we might you know, discuss other venues if they seem like they're going to work better or whatever. And we are listed. If you go to the Strong Towns website where they have a page, join a local conversation, they have a map and we're on that map. Awesome. Well, what is one simple thing everyone in Fayetteville can do today to make it a better city? Take the time to smile and be nice to your neighbors. Honestly. <laughs> no, it's, it's a classic. And I think it 
it, it bears repeating as many times as we need to say it because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how many times you hear it. It's just, you want to reinforce that because mm-hmm. it's true. It makes you happy. It makes... That was mine. That was one of our other guests. I think it's a common refrain. Just smile, say hello to somebody. That's part of what made me love this city. We fell in love as soon as we got here. The people are just so nice. Also, what is an organization or cause you'd like to shout out? Oh, man, there's so many great businesses along the trail. I love Woodstone Pizza and Arcegas and the Prairie Street Tap Room, obviously, because I live right next to them. So I love them. And I have a neighbor, actually, who lives in one of those old houses that's been turned into little funky apartments. And he doesn't drive either. And he works at that Arcegas. So he can totally just go to work every day and does not have to drive a car. So it's super cool. That is cool. Any trail-oriented business or trail-oriented development is right by me. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you you taking the time. Is there anything else you wanted to leave us with before we we wrap up? Uh, No, I just hope people will get involved with Fayetteville Strong. All right. And we do too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.